And now for a look at Ukraine's rich Jewish heritage, then and now, brought to you by the Ukrainian Jewish Encounter based in Toronto, Ontario. Diane Covert is a Boston-based photographer who uses her talent and love of the craft to bring attention to genocide and terrorism. Diane's work was brought to my attention by Alison Ziven at the Felshton Society in New York. The Felshton Society is an organization that is commemorating the pogroms of the early 20th century that took place in what is now modern-day Ukraine and other countries once occupied by the Russian, Austro-Hungarian, and Soviet empires. As a photographer, Diane sheds new light, literally, on what happened during this time. One of her three websites, called Why They Left, documents why Jews fled Eastern Europe in droves during the first part of the 20th century. She joins us now by Skype to tell us about her work and some of her fascinating discoveries in the world of photography going back a century in time and on the other side of the planet. Welcome, Diane. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. That was a nice intro. Oh, good. Well, I hope it covered everything and piqued our listeners' interest. I'm sure you have. So, uh, first of all, just tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to be a photographer living in Boston. Well, I was just one of those kids who wanted to be an artist. I always wanted to be an artist. And it was when I went to art school, I was at Rhode Island School of Design and then later at Kansas City Art Institute, that I discovered that I loved photography. And I became a photographer. I, I switched from painting to photography and um, became extremely interested in the documentary photography movement that was so prominent at that time. And so how did you get into documenting genocide and terrorism? That happened a number of years later. I was driving my daughter to a violin lesson as a teenager. It was February, I want to say 2002. And um, I had NPR on, which is uh, National Public Radio in the U.S. Right. And they had a program called Palestinian Women. And basically they were talking about the first a suicide terror attack carried out by a woman. Oh. But they put it in this strange feminist context. Hmm. And it was not my understanding of feminism. It was mm -hmm. very disturbing. I wrote them a letter in February and received my answer in August, and in which they acknowledged it, that that wasn't their best effort. But by then I had decided that the world didn't really understand this idea of suicide terrorism mm -hmm. and that you put on a suicide vest and you the human being becomes the bomb actually and you can go up to a group of people anywhere in the world this can happen and for any reason and there are always disputes okay. and people are always angry with each other about something it moves around the planet but there's there's usually some dispute happening somewhere and i didn't think that in any way we should be Tying that behavior to feminism, which I saw is certainly much more noble or it's certainly nonviolent. Right. So um, it made me decide that I wanted to teach people or show people mm -hmm. via photography about terrorism. Now, that was an interesting problem because although there were photographs of you know buses and cafes, 
that had been blown up, most people couldn't tolerate looking at them. They're they're too anxiety provoking, right. yeah. horrible. So one day I just popped in my head that I could use X-rays and CT scans. The doctors told me that this is their word, but that it's sanitized. In other words, there's no blood, and and you can look at this and study it and really understand the damage without the anxiety which interferes with our ability to absorb it. And those are photographs. I consider them straight photographs, but they are made with a different wavelength of light, and they let us see inside of terrorism and also inside of the mind of the terrorists themselves. Wow. Wow. So after that experience with you know NPR, you decided then to go on a series of speaking tours or right i built it i built the show it's a it's a large installation it's still available for if people are interested the last time i showed it was 2013 at a gallery in virginia but i built that installation and started showing it in 2005 and it toured the united states it went to harvard it went to stanford it went to uc berkeley it went to medical schools it went all over the place and my point was, uh, more than just this is horrible, but this is horrible and this is very simple to do. Because when you look inside of these x-rays, you see hex nuts and bolts and screws. I mean, the bombs are made out of things that you can buy in a hardware store anywhere in the world. And I wanted people to understand how easy it would be for this uh, phenomenon of suicide terrorism to spread uh, no matter how you feel about Jewish people or how you feel about Israel. And there are disputes. People don't agree or whatever. But the idea that this is a technique and almost always carried out by very young people who are too young, the adolescent brain is not mature enough to understand the permanence of death. It's a terrible thing. And, you know, the sad thing is that this really is nothing new. The technology is new, but... Over time, you've had this irrational hatred towards people that manifests in these acts of terror. And it happened during the Holocaust. It happened before the Holocaust, throughout Mm. time. And, you know, people just don't seem, I don't know, people, their brains don't engage. I don't know if their emotions take over or what it is. But, you know, you stop and think, this is another human being. Why would I want to inflict such harm? But yet, they did. And, you know, a hundred years ago, now, as I mentioned, we were connected through the Felshton Society. We were just talking to me recently with Alan uh, Bernstein at the Felshton Society about their commemorations of the pogroms from a hundred years ago, in which most people only maybe have a vague awareness of, thanks to Fiddler right. on the Roof, right? <laughs> so you have a whole website devoted to documenting through phot- photographs those pogroms. So tell us about that and how you got into that. Well, as I worked on the the x-ray project, I I understood about myself that I was very interested in Jewish history and the history of anti-Semitism specifically. And bringing visual evidence or or saving visual documentation. Mm -hmm. So I moved the x-rays into the field of art in part to save them 
for future uh, future historians, for others to think about what what we saw here, because they were obviously only created to help people to survive. And uh, my own background is, you know, I grew up in a Jewish home, and all of my relatives, grandparents, and great aunts and uncles, one way or another, both sides came from families that left during the various waves of pogroms. There were three big waves, I think. The first was that fiddler on the roof. And then there were some around 1906, I think 1903 to 1906. And then the biggest and most destructive wave was the Russian Civil War pogroms. And I knew that I wanted to do something about the pogroms. I did not have a lot of information about them. But I happened across a graduate student bulletin from Harvard. I live not too far from there. And um, there was a young man who was doing research into the Russian Civil War Jewish Defense League or something. And I was able to contact him. And he showed me this book. It's all in Russian, 78 photographs. It's a very rare book. And I said, this should be a photo show. They're amazing pictures. It's quite an in-depth archive of the pogroms, specifically during the Russian Civil War. And he told me that it had originally been a photo installation, that um, in Moscow in 1923, they hung a show of photos and they had an exhibit of documentation around it, which is bigger than the book, but it is a catalog. And they only published 5,000 of them in Moscow. They published them not until 1926. And then the people who, uh, the main person who compiled all the documentation was probably purged. He disappears after 37. <laughs> wow. So um, these photos exist in these catalogs, and I tried to see if the originals existed in archives in Ukraine. I, I had no luck with that. But I have the photos. I, I actually own my own copy. And I um, decided to bring them into the 21st century because how many of them survived? And then who's able to look at them? So the idea was to take them and kind of really literally pull them out of the grave and, and present them again uh, for the purposes of scholarly research, education, and also families who want to know a little bit about their own past because they all came with Russian captions and I have them translated into English. So uh, you can look at them and see either Russian or English or see both actually. Oh, that's fantastic. And that's on your website called whytheyleft.org? Um, whytheyleft.org has a sampling of those. We have a nonprofit called the Jewish Diaspora Cultural Foundation, Jewish Diaspora Foundation.org. And we are going to be building this site out to include all of that. My dream is to take not just these photographs, there are others, and build a very large searchable archive. So the photographs that I have. We know the towns because they told us the towns, the dates. You can cross-check them to known pogroms. You can see people. You can see children, farmers, doctors and other medical personnel. Some of them 
perpetrators are in there. Um, unfortunately, a lot of, of scenes of destruction. So these photographs, now we're talking about something that happened a century ago. And this is a really interesting story of behind these photographs. Tell us how they came about. Okay, so it was both professionals and ordinary people who, who made these. And I call them dedicated amateurs because to be able to use camera, a camera and film back then, you needed to know more. Today we pick up our cell phone. If we see something extraordinary, we shoot. But as a photographer, I can tell looking at this book that most of these pictures even were definitely made by professionals. And we know that there were organizations, Ukrainian relief organizations, and the Red Cross had groups in the what was called the Pale of Settlement or the area where the Jews mostly lived. And they were interviewing people and in some cases documenting. I, I work with a Brandeis academic. Her name is Dr. Irina Astashkevich. She's from Russia, and we, together we are translating these documents. One of them is this uh, volunteer firefighter who complained after a pogrom that his camera had been stolen. <laughs> so this tells us that there were cameras all over the place. Yeah. But another one, it's from the report of Inspector I. Aronovich to the central section for the aid of pogrom victims of the Department of the Aid of Victims of the Counter-Revolution <laughs> of the People's Commissariat of Social Provisions for the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic about the results of the inspection of Shtetl, which is a small town, right? Shtetl Bolodarka, Skvira region of the Kiev province, August 11th, 1919. And that's the but title? That whole thing was the title? That's the title. <laughs> but what we find out, what he says is, at the beginning, part of the Bolodarka refugees who came here in hope of finding anything of their property walked around the Shtetl, rummaging in the ashes, I am hurt and saddened looking at exhausted people who were left naked and shoeless on the street without any means of living, making the impression of orphans. And then he goes on later and says, we wanted to go and photograph the demolished fortifications for which purpose we brought a camera with us that we had purchased specifically for this purpose. Oh. Once we went out onto the street with a camera, we saw the people running in panic from everywhere towards Skivira. So what this means is that they didn't have a photographer, because I'm a photographer, I can tell you. We own cameras, and we're hired to do a job, we bring them with us. These people, there was a dedicated amateur, at least one, who knew how to use a camera. And when he stepped out with his camera, what he saw was an ongoing pogrom, because they were running in panic. We saw people running in panic from oh, everywhere wow. Wow. towards Skivira. And then later he goes on and says, we began to photograph and made six pictures of different parts of the shtetl. And that number six fascinated me because with a very large professional camera, you probably couldn't do six. But um, with smaller cameras, you could. And I, I had already started investigating did they have consumer-level cameras in the area? Did they have film from both the Library of Congress and the George Eastman House Museum? I know that the answer is yes. And I talked to specialists in both of those institutions. And one gentleman, 
I, uh, is a technical specialist historian, and I said to him, in 1920, how long was roll film? And he said either six frames or eight frames. So this, I believe, is why they took six pictures, right? Oh, I see. Six frames. Mm-hmm. But there's there's a lot of documentation in the form of old magazines, and um, Kodak told me where their representatives were located, where their offices were, and it includes Odessa, for example, um, during the Russian Civil War period. So individuals owned cameras, knew how to process film, and when these investigators came, they asked for first-person interviews. It's not difficult to believe that some of those people also were able to say, and this is a picture that I took. To me, this is fascinating because it, it's the same thing that we do today when we see something extraordinary. Mm-hmm. It can be extraordinarily beautiful or surprising or horrific. It could be something that happened in, in war-torn Syria. Was there not, a, I think, a little kid who uploaded pictures, right, and it went all through the Internet? This is the beginnings of the ability to do that. What a look back in time to see the start of of where we are now. So if people want to find out more about the pogroms themselves, you can, a picture is worth a thousand words, right? At this point, you go to why they left, one word, dot org, because it's about why people left and came to the U.S. or Canada. But if you wish to contribute to helping us to build out a large, searchable archive that scholars all over the world and students and families will be able to use. You can either go to the Jewish Diaspora Foundation.org or if you just mail it to Jewish Diaspora Cultural Foundation or JDCF, 17 Holt, H-O-L-T Street in Belmont, B-E-L-M-O-N-T, Massachusetts, it's United States, 02478 is our zip code. And I will send you the paperwork so that if you're in the U.S. at least, it's a 501c3 tax-deferred organization, and you, you get the full tax break for doing that if, you, if you're interested. So um, tell me more about the what's going to be the content on this website, that you're working on, and, and you said you're working on a, a, you're kind of redoing the book? Well, the original idea that we had was to actually republish the book in English, and I've had it translated, believe it or not, four times. Oh, wow. The issue, <laughs> as I spoke with more and more specialists in Russian history and the history of the Russian Civil War, Ukrainian history, I came to understand that the issue is that the photographs are very accurate and very important. The documents, because they were not collected until 1923, had this very heavy Soviet bias. So there's a lot of language about comrade this and comrade that, Mm -hmm. and a lot of anger expressed towards the merchant class or kulaks or the middle class or wealthy Mm -hmm. people. So instead of dividing people um, between Jewish people and let's say Russian Orthodox or Catholic Christian people, they divided people according to whether they were working class in their mind 
the proletariat or the bourgeoisie. And that isn't accurate to what the experience of the Jewish people who were caught up in the pogroms in the old pale of settlement felt and lived through. So the academic that I'm working with, and I mentioned Dr. Rina Ostakevich at Brandeis, is working with an older um, set of first-person accounts from 1919, 1920, and we're translating those. And our final book will be a combination of photographs and first-person accounts that happened during the time of the pogroms so that people get a realistic understanding of, of what the population experienced. And by the way, in those, you often find Ukrainian people in those areas helping, hiding, and so on, the Jewish people. So it's not a story of just one group against another group. It's very specific militias and um, armies that came in and carried out these activities. And there were these, these criminal bandit gangs that were involved, but a lot of people, in fact, I've had conversations with friends, and many of them will tell you stories that their their grandma told them that they were hidden as little children by such and such neighbors. That happened. Yeah. yeah. Wow. If it hadn't, we wouldn't all be here. I wow. Think. So the original was great for as a research source, but um, yes. so what you're going to be doing is something a little more informative for modern audiences, strip out the Soviet propaganda. It was anachronistic, actually. And uh, so we'll get something a little bit more real. Again, tell us where we can f- we'll be able to find that at some point. The book we're working on and the website, we will I will notify you when all I have all 178 images prepared and translated, but they're not posted on the website yet. Okay, so that's uh, that's why people need to donate. <laughs> I need specialists, computer science specialists, and I also need researchers to help us dig up more of these images. I'm very interested in visual archives because this is pre-Photoshop, so what you see is what you get. Right. Um, and I want good sources of first-person documents where people are describing what they went through. And that will be able to be compared to, say, what people are going through today in different parts of the world. I think it will be a really useful tool for researchers moving forward in ways that, that I can imagine, but in ways also that we can't imagine yet. So it takes you beyond Fiddler on the Roof, the story behind the story. And uh, it, it wasn't just a, a bunch of dancing vandals that crashed a wedding party. And it's good to, that that brought attention to the fact that they existed. But to me, it was it was just a fascinating look, cultural history. But And I, you know, as a Ukrainian person, I knew that there were Jewish people there and they were just, they were there. <laughs> and, right. you know, and, uh, you know, U- Ukrainians and Jews have li- coexisted sometimes peacefully, sometimes not, but successfully, I would say, for centuries, except for the times and until the times when outside forces came in and stirred up trouble between us. Well, you know, there's a lot of truth to what you're saying there, because even the fiddler on the roof era pogroms, and then that second wave that I mentioned were nowhere near as violent or as devastating. This third wave during the Russian Civil War, and you would know better than I what the Ukrainians suffered as a result of that. Yeah. 
is when things really, really, uh, it intensified. It became much, much worse. And historians have told me, I am not a historian, but I have worked with them, that uh, most people think that in the East, the Holocaust was really almost modeled on what was going on in Mm -hmm. the pogrom era. Not the uh, death camps and all that, but the... um, these big pits and uh, every the, the way the Holocaust was carried out in um, Russia and Ukraine and the East. Yeah. yeah. So it's a very important period, and it is transition into, unfortunately, into the Holocaust. Yeah. And then here we are, you know, back full circle to the work that, that started you on this, is it knows no boundaries. It's, it's just, um, it's not... It's universal, I guess. It's It just carries on, and I think people need to look within themselves. It is so easy to become one of them if you're not careful, isn't it? Right. I, well, minority groups, I guess, I suppose what happens is minority groups under times of stress are, are very, very vulnerable. I mean, I don't know. that. Again, it's not my expertise this is pure speculation but um you see it you see it in a lot a lot of the world that's part of why this work is important because it sheds light on um on genocide in other parts of the world and it is it's not necessarily the very first archive photo archive because the armenian genocide Mm -hmm. was a few years earlier, but because there was so much concentration of camera, apparently cameras and photographers and um, specialists in interviewing people and recording it, it's a very, very deep, broad archive of information. And, and it is rem- it reminds us of what goes on in places like even Syria today mm-hmm. or other parts of the world. Mm-hmm. So I think it needs to be studied. I actually think that the things that I would see in it, or even today's historians see in it, may not be the things that people see in it in the future. There may be deeper understanding as people study it. That's partly, that's another piece of why I'd like to preserve it. I think that there, for example, there was always germs or something going on, and hmm. before before we had microscopes, microscopes, but then we looked in the microscope and we said, "Wow, that's interesting." I think there may be some kind of um, um, information that's buried in these images um, that that scholars with fresh eyes will see in the future that we don't necessarily see today. This is a, a way of yeah looking forward by looking into the past and understanding the whole root cause, um, or not perhaps not the root cause, but understand that this is not new and it's been going on, and maybe there is a way that we can stop it or at least re- reduce it. Yeah. And that's another really big piece. I wouldn't show most of these images to middle school children and certainly not elementary school children. But high school teachers can use some of this, and uh, college professors can use some of this in classes around um, differences, either uh, political or racial or religious differences um, or differences in ability, we say, um, and help people understand that that, um, hatred can really spin out of control, and it has 
very far-ranging consequences. I mean, this is not a bad thing necessarily, but three-quarters of the Jewish people who live in the United States today are, we think, are descendants from people who's, like myself, grandparents, great-grandparents, whatever, in my case, grandparents, um, entire families left. My grandparents were children, and their parents just said, we have to leave. My grandfather was a baby, and his parents had lost two children in a previous pogrom, and they left, you know? Children. So people, yeah, so people leave... Um, it changes the, it, I'm sure it changed things in Ukraine and it changed things in the United States. Some, for the better, not for the better, that's not for me to, to speculate. But these things have very, very, very far ranging consequences. And we see it today with, um, or within the past few years with mm-hmm. pan- panicked people escaping war torn yeah. areas. Yeah, yeah. So to get um, a look back into this period of time, um, a century ago in photographs, tell us again, Diane, where to find your work online. Okay. Um, the whytheyleft.org okay. is, has at this point most of the images, or not most of them actually, a handful of the images. Um, JewishDiasporaFoundation.org, one word. Um, we'll soon have links to many, many more of them. I have already had 178 images uh, translated, oh, wow. and they will be available for people soon. I'm speaking about this for anybody in the U.S. Oh, they probably wouldn't be able to hear it tomorrow evening. I'm speaking in Brookline, Massachusetts um, oh. on this topic, and the work will be um, on display there. Oh, cool. So for people to find out more about the pogroms, about your work, the photographs, whytheyleft.org, and as well a broader uh, range of work, jewishdiasporafoundation.org, where uh, people can make a donation as well. Awesome. Thank you so much, Diane. Thank you, Paulina. Ukrainian Jewish Heritage is brought to you by the Ukrainian Jewish Encounter, based in Toronto, Ontario. To find out more about their work, visit their website and follow them on Facebook and Twitter. Transcripts and audio files of this and earlier broadcasts of Ukrainian Jewish Heritage are available at their website, ukrainianjewishencounter.org, as well as at the Nasholos website, www.nasholos.com. Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now.